Good morning. Let us begin worship this morning by greeting each other in the name of Jesus. As we start heading back to our seats, Psalms 18 verses 1 through 3 says, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I have been saved from my enemies. Let us begin this morning by singing High Above It All.
help me trust in you through even the smallest trials. With my trust in you, help me to declare your love to others. In your precious name, amen.
Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. A few announcements, and then we'll have a prayer time, and then the offering. Um, I'm st- so I guess it was just last week we hosted the Central District Convention. That feels like three months ago, but I, I, ca- I looked at my watch about four times, and I was like, no, no, that was last week. All righty, okay. Um, thank yous continue to come in for that, just so you know. Um, we receive so much uh, thanks and just appreciation for uh, the decorating, the hospitality, the food, the organization, um, just the, the spirit and the attitude with which we receive people. And so just want to pass that, that on to you that we just received a lot of thanks and appreci- appreciation for that. And so want you to hear that um, to the point where they're actually threatening to come back next year. And so um, we're saying no, um, but just, yeah, it's, I guess, when you do something really well, that, that happens. Um, November 19, next weekend, we're uh, going to start decorating for Christmas. Um, I, I know it feels early, but the following Sunday is Advent, our first Advent. And so uh, if we're going to be ready for Advent 1, uh, we need to decorate for Christmas uh, next weekend. And so if you're interested in helping out with that, um, please talk to Helen. Um, please talk to, to Pat Goosen. And uh, we, we, yeah, we could use some, some help doing some decoration with that. Um, in our prayer time, we want to uh, just let you know, uh, Steve Stebbing is at the Central District Youth Conference with about four uh, young men. And uh, Steve texted me last night and just said that it is going really, really well. I mean, just fantastic speaker and just some real neat God moments that, that are happening. And so, um, yeah, just Steve said it's just been a really, really fantastic time. So I just want to let you know. Um, I will be gone this week. Um, our family is going to go on vacation. We will be here next Sunday, uh, but during the week we'll be gone. And we, so we have a guest speaker next Sunday, a gentleman by the name of Matthew Penner. Uh, he has spoken here before. That's actually Erlen's son-in-law. Uh, remarkable guy, um, great communicator. And so uh, looking forward to, to having him here for that. Um, Wednesday night live Christmas program is on December 13, so a little something to, to mark in your calendar. And also Christmas in the Barn, uh, December 22nd, I believe it is, on Friday. And so we're, we're excited to, to do that. So, um, Yeah, one other thing, just in regards to, to offering, um, in, in case you missed it last week. Uh, so last weekend we had the Harvest Missions uh, Festival, and... Uh, historically, that has been a time where, where, we, where we bring in a kind of first fruits, and it's a time of generosity, and so thank you for that. Uh, the morning offering goes to church ministries, and the afternoon offering at the banquet goes to missions. Uh, but recognizing that um, the farming season just dragged out long, and that kind of has a trickle-down effect, and so we're actually keeping that open for a month. So for the next three weeks, uh, if you would like to contribute towards that, just in the memo line, just write Harvest Missions Festival, and then you can tag it either church or missions. And so that will be, that will be coming up. Uh, as we enter into prayer time, uh, a couple things just to be aware of. One, we want to uh, be praying for Doris. Um, her son, Rick, passed away this last week. And uh, the funeral is going to be um, Saturday morning, 9.30. Is it Northwood? Southwood not north, Southwood, uh, Lutheran Church. And we will have the address for that and more details for that in the office. And so if you don't get a chance to write that down, just call the office. And um, so we want to 
be praying for Doris. Um, and also, I'm told Frida's sister passed away this week as well, too. And so we want to be praying for her. So let's, uh, yeah, let's enter into a time of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we come before you with humility. And Lord, uh, some of us come before you with grief, perhaps sprinkled with certain kinds of gratefulness. Lord, we pray for Doris this morning as she prepares to bury a son. God, we ask for your comfort your peace, a tangible sense of your spirit over her and Rick's wife and just the whole family, Lord. Pray for Frida for the same, Lord, that she would know your peace. And God, for us as just fellow brothers and sisters, Lord, show us how to comfort and to come alongside. Lord, it feels like our country just racks up tragedy after tragedy. We think of this church that experienced the shooting down in Texas. God, grief that we just can't even imagine. And yet, Lord, by your spirit, it is turning into a testimony that we can't even imagine. God, I pray for us as a church that we would be faithful. Faithful to you. Faithful to one another. Faithful for all that you entrust into our care. God, may our lives, us as a community, our marriage, our friendships, our words, all serve as a proclamation of you and of your gospel. God, we ask for more opportunity to share the good news of your gospel with those in our circles. Because that really is the most remarkable gift that we can give anyone. God, we pray for your kingdom come in Nebraska. And thank you that we get to be a part of that. Lord, this morning as we continue to worship and to celebrate and give of tithes and offerings and open up your word and study scripture, and Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to worship you. So Lord, for each of us here today, we just open ourselves up and say, Lord, here I am, speak to me. Lord, we want to receive whatever it is that you would have for us. whether it's a word of encouragement, a word of correction, or just simply a, a truth about how you see us. Lord, I pray for all those here that our minds would be saturated in truth and not the lies of the enemy, but God, that we would walk in your truth. Thank you for this morning. We love you and we worship you. Amen.
ushers.
Thank you, worship team. Uh, I'm going to invite uh, Helen and Loretta and Becca, if, if you guys would come forward. Um, so last week we had the Central District Convention, and these three young ladies served as our delegates for the convention. And so uh, that meant that they got to sit in on the business sessions and vote on our behalf and that kind of thing. And so I asked them to share just a little bit of what they learned and some of the things that impacted them and that they walked away with. And I'll let them share, and then I'll share a few things as well, too, but I'll let them share. I really enjoy going to conferences. I know that sounds kind of crazy to some people, but I enjoy just meeting old friends and just because there's always people there that I that I meet and love. But one of the greatest experiences that I that I experienced this last weekend was uh, helping Christine leading worship. It was just wonderful to see the church full of men and women praising God together. <laughs> that was just so cool to me. Um, then uh, the, the other thing that I wanted to mention, Scott Thomas, our speaker, he, he was just fabulous. <coughs> the first message was entitled Victory Through Weakness, and I could identify that with that. Um, when, when we talk about weakness, he talks about the fact that um, just uh, that, where was I? He talked about this treasure that was in each and every one of us, just jars of clay, just weak, and that, that I could identify with. But in, in that weakness was this treasure, this treasure that's in Jesus and the gospel, where the, there's so much power in, in knowing Jesus and in, and in spreading the gospel. So when we are weak, that's what he emphasized. There's, there's strength in that weakness, <coughs> and that's just so powerful. Then the challenge that Rick, I mean that, uh, Rick said to talk about maybe something that challenged him for the future. Well, when I heard Rick Eshbaugh, our Central District Conference um, leader, he, he challenged us this next year to meet with 10 people that didn't know Jesus and to, and to share that gospel. Well, you know, I didn't stand up. I thought 10 people, that's a lot. But I'm going to take that challenge, and I'm going to start with one, I guess, because um, we need to be sharing the good news with other people, and I, I want to take that challenge with me. This is my first time to attend Central District Conference, and I was a little intimidated, like, is there unspoken rules that I should know or <laughs> that sort of thing? So I was like, oh, boy, all these people that are way more wise than I am are gathered in one place. Um, but there was a lot of, I don't know if all of you guys were able to experience the conference firsthand, but um, there was just a lot of energy that went into putting the conference on. And then once you were here, there, the, like the sanctuary, there's just a lot of energy um, and it was really exciting, and I think the biggest takeaway that I had um, leaving the conference was just that, wow, like, we all have a part to play, and that was exciting to see for our church, um, people in our congregation carrying out their roles that they were assigned to, or they graciously um, took the time to contribute in that capacity, and so that was really exciting to see, um, yeah, just members of our church stepping up, and then also um, to realize, wow, um, we aren't in this alone. There are churches all over. Um, I don't even know all the locations people came from, um, and they're playing their part. And so um, that was the biggest takeaway that I had was, wow, like I played my part during CDC, but now like in the grind of things, what is my role to play? Like what's my part in this um, in God's story? And so, yeah, I guess that was my takeaway of, um, yeah, like how 
how, um, what's my role to play and what's our, like, how does our body here in Henderson, like, what's our role and how does that contribute into God's larger story? Well, I remember when we started to plan for the conference and how we spent just several nights, I think, trying to come up with a theme and what should we focus on. And we came up with this verse, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that their surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The jar of clay is common, but the treasure is of indescribable value. It's sort of like we're the black cloth that shows off the diamond. And so, yes, the treasure resides in something, and God has chosen to use us in our weakness. And our speaker, um, I I thought of that, too, when we sang the song, I Will Declare the Beauty of the Lord. That just reminded me of that whole idea that is a, a jar of clay. That's our responsibility to show the beauty of the Lord. But Scott kept referring to us as takeout containers, <laughs> throwaway things, easily discarded. We're common, we're frail, we're broken. And this reminded me of uh, a conversation I had with a friend. Uh, we have a friend, Steve Reimer, who lives in Shafter, California. Some of you may know him. He's an almond farmer, and that's what I truly thought he was, an almond farmer. But he contributes greatly to church planting, both in his time, his efforts, uh, and with his, with his money. And in a conversation, they said something about him teaching classes at the seminary that year. And I thought, well, I'm going to explore that. So uh, I wondered how an almond farmer becomes a seminary professor. Well, as it turns out, he has studied and has completed all the work he needs for his doctorate. And so, of course, he's sort of an adjunct there at the seminary when they need them. But he was working on his dissertation, and he just hadn't solved the mystery yet. And his dissertation took him to Israel, to the various, uh, the tells where they do the excavations. And he said in every, every, every place they explore, they come up with just lots of shards of clay. Very thin. Uh, they don't know what it's for. Why would it be there? Among all the other things that seem to be of value, there's just all this rubble, and it's shards of clay. And he said... What we've come up with, we think it would be similar to our foam paper cups. (laughs) That they also had things like that that they would use that were just uh, not of great value. But yes, even even then they had takeout containers. And I can just imagine at the market that sometimes they needed something that wasn't of great value to send something home with somebody. And as far as the future, I was just impressed with how diverse we were. It was great to see different races, ethnicities, people from different backgrounds gathering in our our wonderful uh, social area there, which was uh, always so well provided with snacks. Uh, Being a delegate, I sat in the back. I just kind of thought that's my opportunity to take a back row. And I was by myself until two gentlemen joined me, and they were Apostle Claude Tomba Tomba and the worship leader from the New Jerusalem Temple in Sioux Falls. And by the end of that ses- the sessions, I just felt like they were new best friends. You know, I would love to go to their church. They stood very respectfully, and I only, they didn't sing. They must not have known the songs, but there was one song, and the young man sitting next to me, he is the worship leader, and he sang, and I just, just enjoyed his beautiful, beautiful voice. And someday I'd like to go worship there, visit them. And then the, t- the challenge to me was Christian Coase, who's a church planter in I'm probably not going to pronounce this, Owatonna, Minnesota. And he just briefly spoke, but he said, we have 30 people that are gathering, and only half of them are Christians. 
And I thought there's a lot of work for us to do. And I just praise God for that, that each one will win one in that group setting and that we will look and see what our mission is here. Thank you. Did I? We had... I believe it's eight churches join our conference this last time. Um, Excellent Mennonite Church in Excellent, Wisconsin. Uh, Sand Lake Chapel in Stone Lake, Wisconsin. Strawberry Lake Mennonite Church in Ogema, Minnesota. Ogema, O-G-E-M-A, Minnesota. Lake Region Mennonite Church out of Detroit Lakes, Minnesota. Coleridge Mennonite Church out of uh, Dagmar, Montana. Redemption Church, uh, this church plant in Owatonna, Minnesota. Grace International Church in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, And the New Jerusalem Temple out of Sioux Falls. And so that was really exciting. And so, like, that's part of our conference now. That's part of our family. I mean, we, we know a lot of the familiar ones, like, oh, there's one in by Huron, and there's one out west, and that kind of thing. But... Now you, you need to start including more in Minnesota and Wisconsin and Indiana in, in the mix, which was really neat. Um, you know, the, uh, when Scott came out, Scott was our speaker, just one of some of the few things that I was impacted by. You know, in the whole visioning process, you know, we discovered that it, it was in the, you know, the founding fathers had this vision of, of taking the gospel to other parts of rural Nebraska and not just Henderson. And so for this last year, you know, we've kind of been praying into that and wrestling with that. But, you know, I, I, I asked Scott, I was like, I, like, Scott, we're a church of a hundred in a town of a thousand. Like, is this just dumb? Like, do we keep kind of praying into this? Like, come speak a little bit of truth and, and wisdom into, into our reality. And so he came out Thursday night, met with some of the, with many of you. And um, that was, that was really good for me. You know, he, uh, when it comes to, um, to opening up another location or, or church planting or that kind of thing. I mean, there, there's some practical things you need to do. But he compared it a lot to having kids or even just the, the, the whole birth process. And one of the things he said, he goes, is, you never feel ready. Like, you will never feel ready. And, and he had these different studies that he referenced. And they, they, they interviewed churches of 100 to several thousand. And all of them said, you know, if we just had 25% more, we would feel ready. If we had 25% more people, if we had 25% more funds, we would feel ready. And, um, yeah, I, and it was just, it was encouraging. There, and, and studies, you know, of churches that do engage in targeting other locations, just the growth that, that they experience, even at, at the home church. And, um, and another thing that I was encouraged by, I think, it, I think his name was, I think it was Daniel uh, that was doing the banquet. I don't know if you were there Saturday night for the banquet. And he tept, kept talking about his best leaders and how excited he was to kick them out. And, and, and to kick them out just into other churches, other communities, other ministries. Like, they're mature, they're ready, like, let's kick them out. He was so excited to kick out his best leaders. And I thought, not my mentality. But so encouraging and, and convicting in that. It was, it was just really neat. And so... Um, yeah, it was it was a really great conference and so much so much good stuff, and uh, and encouraging just for me as well too to just say all right like let's keep 
just praying into what does it mean to pursue rural Nebraska with the gospel. And um, we have a lot of stuff to figure out, but, uh, but it's doable. So, Joshua 7 to Joshua 9 uh, is not where we're at today. Um, but it is a story that I want to share with you because I want this story as a backdrop or as a foundation for what we're going to talk about today. So I, you can turn there if you want, but otherwise I will just kind of give you a summary of what's going on. So ja- in Joshua chapter 7, um, you probably may see it titled like Achan's Sin. Um, the, I've heard it sometimes referenced as sin in the camp. But here's a little bit of the backdrop. So Israel has been wandering in the desert for 40 years. They've now moved into the promised land, and God is giving them instructions as they move in. And there's a lot of um, kind of other pagan people and pagan nations, and they're supposed to drive them out. And in certain cases, he gives very speci- God gives very specific instructions that they're not to take any of the plunder, any of the gold or silver or cattle or riches or anything like that. They're just supposed to destroy it, wipe it all out, that kind of thing. And so what happens then is, is they go in and, and um, they come up against the, this, this people, I, A-I, it's spelled A-I. You just get two vowels, right? So, um, and it should have been an easy battle. They go up and they lose miserably. And Joshua immediately recognizes that something's wrong. And so he goes in, into just prayer and confession mode before the altar. And then, and then it says this, and I've edited out some of the words um, just to, con- to make it more concise. But this is what God says. Uh, that God, God tells Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant. They have stolen, lied. Put them with their own possessions, like they stole some stuff. They put it with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. So this guy Achan, when they were, when they were going through, he saw some clothes that were really nice, and he saw some, a whole lot of silver, and he saw a whole lot of gold, and he wanted to keep it for himself. He, wanted, he didn't want to do that. So he takes it back, he like digs a hole in his tent, and he hangs on to it. And then the entire nation goes up to battle and loses because of this, because of what he did. And so then they go through this process. He gets singled out, and, and and he and his family are put to death because of this. And then God gives them victory. And the idea is, is this. That your sin affects me, and my sin affects you. And that we see there are times in the character of God where God does not bless our endeavor because one of us is intentionally hiding habitual sin. And so... You know, this idea that, hey, like maybe we want to launch some like new VBS or like launch an outreach or hold a rally or something like that. But God withdraws his hand of blessing because someone in the group is intentionally harboring unrepentant sin. Unless you think this is an isolated incident, this also happens in Exodus 33. Powerful, powerful story there where the Israelites screwed up again and God says, I'm going to send an angel ahead of you. I am not going to go with you. 
but I'm going to send an angel with you instead because of your just continued rebelliousness. And Moses falls on his face before God and says, unless you go with us, do not send us up from here. Because what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth other than your presence? Great passage. Love that passage. There's so much good stuff in this passage. Did you know that in North America, and I forget if it was Ed Stetzer or Thomas Rainer that, that was sharing this, in North America, the li- it is not the liberal churches that are growing, it is the conservative churches that are growing. Which kind of seems to go against common sense, because as our culture becomes increasingly liberal, you would think the churches that move alongside it would grow. And they're not. The churches that are getting increasingly liberal are not growing, they're declining. And those that are staying conservative are the ones that are growing. And I think it's because when churches no longer hold true to hold that Scripture is true, when they start to say, well, it's got some flex to it, when they no longer proclaim Jesus as the only means of salvation, um, it's amazing some of the stuff that churches will say or won't say. Um, just stories I've heard of people going to a church for years and never hurting the clear proclamation of the gospel never hearing jesus is the only way of salvation um even when churches start to endorse just unbiblical forms of relationships or marriage i don't believe that god blesses that and that he does withdraw his favor so in this story of Achan's sin this story is known to nehemiah this would have been this is in his scriptures this is in his bible he knows this story and he knows that this is part of god's character and what we are about to see as we look into nehemiah is that the israelites commit a sin and it's kind of a big one but it's an internal sin right this is not an external pressure this is an internal thing and it's pretty bad and, and they're, they're, they're committing offenses against one another, which is really bad. But I believe that Nehemiah recogni- recognizes that the bigger picture is the potential for God to remove himself from this project, and then their whole thing is done. If God, if God says, you know what, you guys are just continuing in just unrepentant sin, I'm, gonna with- I'm withdrawing. Nehemiah knows that everything they have worked for is done. It is over. Um, we are, so we've been working through Nehemiah, amazing book on leadership, probably one of the best books on leadership that, that you will read, um, or study on it. And it applies to church. It applies to home. It applies to marriage and family. It applies to running your farm, your business, your community involvement. There's so much overlap that that's going on. Uh, in chapter one of Nehemiah, Nehemiah learns that the walls of Jerusalem are still in, in, in disrepair. They've been torn down. Uh, Jerusalem had been conquered um, earlier, and um, there have been these waves of exiles that have gone back, but the wall still remains in, in ruins. And, and this news just destroys Nehemiah. He grieves. He, he enters into this season of just prayer and fasting. And out of that is burst within Nehemiah this vision that he must be the one to do something. That this is not like, hey, God, would you stir up someone else to go fix that? Out of that time, Nehemiah becomes convinced that he must do something. And so he begins to pray for opportunity, which is there's 
that's unique. And, and rather than praying that someone else does something, he prays for an opportunity for him to do something. In chapter 2, Nehemiah risks it all. He goes before the king. I mean, he risks his very life to go before this king. He has a list of requests that a temperamental narcissistic dictator are unlikely to grant. But God works a miracle. And he does it, and, and, and he blesses them, and he gives them the, 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 the permission to go and do this thing. Nehemiah travels to Jerusalem, he inspects the wall, and he just gives one of the best vision speeches possible. And he addresses the question, what's the problem? What's the solution? Why do we need to do something? Why do we need to do something now? Next time you want to give a vision casting speech, you answer those four questions. And the more clarity you have around those things whether it be in your marriage or raising kids or your business, just the, 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 the better you will lead. Chapter 3, he gives us a list of workers. Chapter 4, this is what we talked about last time we were together, external threats. At first, people are mocking, and then it goes to full-on death threats. And so they reorganize. The vision stays the same, but how they accomplish that vision changes, almost changes daily. Now in chapter 5, Nehemiah is going to face internal threats. So here's another question for you. Churches that you're aware of, primarily in North America, churches that have closed, uh, churches that have taken a hit, uh, churches that, that, that are, are just simply no longer impactful in their community. Was it internal Right? Some kind of conflict, a uh, scandal around the pastor, uh, or failure, uh, uh, moral failure on the pastor's part, uh, bullies in the church, right? Or they just chose comfort over relevance. Was it internal or was it external? Um, it became illegal. Um, they were forced legally to shut down, to, to close their place. Um, people were killed or driven out of the community, buildings were burned down. The, just the church was somehow driven out of town. They were forced to shut down in the community. Every church that I can think of that has either shut down or lost its relevance, it's internal. Now that we are seeing more and more external stuff, right? I mean, this church shooting in, in Texas, how are they going to recover? Um, Seattle has got some really wonky zoning laws that make it pretty much impossible for anyone to build a new church building. Um, so we are seeing an increase in kind of the external threat. But every church that I can think of where they have, where they have closed or lost their relevance, it's been internal. And that is why Nehemiah chapter 5 is so relevant and actually should, should terrify us because we shift from the external pressure to the internal conflict. And because here's the other thing that I want you to remember as we get ready to go through this, is that internal conflict poses more danger to you and I than external threats. It is not the external. I mean, the external is real, right? Like we're not negating that. But the bigger threat is internal. And this is not just for churches. This is for your marriage. This is for your family. This is running kids, raising kids, running your business, right? Or you're running some family farm and you got all these family members and they're all trying to decide how to manage the land and properties. This church, other, other nonprofits you volunteer at, the business you lead, all of it is vulnerable to the internal conflicts more so than the external. 
And so as we go through uh, chapter 5, just remember those two things. The, the idea of sin in the camp, where my sin affects you and your sin affects me. And we see in the character of God that at times he has withdrawn his hand of blessing because of just that uh, unrepentant sin. And also just that the ex- internal conflicts are, um, are a greater threat than the external. Working through the first part of chapter 5. Uh, It begins with this. Now, there was a great outcry of people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers, internal. Um, And then they list about three or four complaints. Here's the first one. With our sons and daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and uh, keep alive. So the Israelites have huge families. Lots of kids, that kind of thing. And they're just having a hard time feeding everybody. Building the wall possibly contributed to that. They think that this is actually um, during harvest time, fall time, that this is happening. Everyone has moved from the countryside to inside the city, so just harvest in the farms isn't happening. Big families, we're having a hard time feeding everybody. Complaint one. Complaint number two, we're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. Well, one, they're having to mortgage everything. Two, there's a famine? We didn't, like, we covered so much ground so fast at the beginning of the book, the writer of Nehemiah forgot to mention, oh yeah, by the way, there's a famine in the land. Like, that's kind of a pretty big thing to gloss over, and it kind of makes you wonder, like, what other little things was Nehemiah having to put up with when he first showed up, like, oh yeah, there's a famine. Third, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. They're having to pay taxes. And they're having to borrow money to pay for it. Okay, but now here's where it gets really twisted and sick. Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. So we're all related. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Other Israelites are basically serving as loan sharks to their fellow Israelites. And we see later on charging really high interest rate to the point that their kids are getting sold into slavery actually to the surrounding nations. I don't know how they figure out this number, but some actually theorize that we're talking like a 20 to 40% interest rate. I don't know where they got that, but just looking at historical, cultural kind of stuff, they, they think it could have been in that bracket or maybe even higher. And Nehemiah is just in a rage, an absolute rage when he hears this. I was very angry. The Hebrew is strong. I was very angry. Not just angry, very angry. When I heard their outcry in these words, I took counsel with myself. So the guy just like, got to go for a walk, calm down, think this through. I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest from each of his brother. Old Testament law strictly forbid Israelites from charging interest to other Israelites. Now, if one of the surrounding pagan nations wanted to borrow money, you can charge all the interest you want. Like, feel free to take them to the bank. But fellow brothers and sisters, fellow Israelites, you do not, you do not charge them interest. That's a clear one in the Old Testament. So that big no-no right there. Uh, And then he says, I held a great assembly against them. 
probably for two reasons. He probably didn't just take it to the courts because one, these were probably these men were probably in the courts. Like like these were the, the elders who sat at the gates who decided things, right? But secondly, this problem involves everyone. And so if it's a problem that involves everyone, then everyone needs to be involved in just like the restoration process. And so when someone is a victim of something, right, you don't keep that person in the dark concerning the justice of their situation. Like, it involves everyone, so we're going to, like, we're going to involve everyone. And here's where it gets really amazing. Uh, So Nehemiah says to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers and sisters who have been sold to the nations, but even you sell your brothers... So that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find to say a word. So Nehemiah and some of his other companions, we're not sure who, but he says we. So he's got some buddies or some other leaders. They have been buying back these kids and other people who were sold into slavery to these foreign nations. Only to find out that it was fellow Israelites who sold them there in the first place. Are you guys tracking with me? Nehemiah and his companions are having to buy back kids sold into slavery, and he is finding out that it was fellow Israelites who sold them there. These men are completely caught in their sin. They have nothing to say. And in all reality, everybody knows what's going on. Everybody knows that this is a bad thing, but until Nehemiah comes along, no one really had the power or the influence to step in and stop this. Um, I'm not going to read the the rest of the the, the chapter, but I do want to point out just a few things. Uh, Nehemiah um, scolds them for harming one another, but he brings it back to the big picture because he says what you're doing is going to result in God being mocked. Um, They agree to give back the property and the interest. So it sounds like maybe the the loan remained, but any money that they gathered off the interest was given back, and and they're giving back their their property so they can farm again. Uh, Nehemiah does not trust them. So he calls in the priests to conduct some kind of oath-swearing ceremony. And then he does this shake-out-his-robe thing, which is basically a form of a curse uh, against them. The final section in Nehemiah, there's a big, long section. And in my Bible, it just says, Nehemiah's generosity. And it seemed kind of like a random thing, like, just kind of in the middle of the book, we're going to throw in this big, long section on Nehemiah's generosity. But here's the thing, that actually, the placement of that, it serves as an example and as a contrast to the selfishness that was taking place by these other Jewish leaders. The reason that we see this big statement on Nehemiah's generosity is to contrast the selfishness that was taking place internally amongst these kind of fellow uh, Jewish brothers and sisters. Okay, here's what I want you to remember from this. First of all, I want you to remember that internal threats, your disputes, your conflicts, your sin, they're a greater threat and a danger, most likely, than external opposition. And and especially, I I, I think, just kind of for here, us, North America. But this is true for your church. This is true for your marriage, for your family and kids, for, for your business. 
I mean, when we look at chapter 4, we actually see that the external threats galvanized and, and, and like their commitment and their efficiency that we had never seen before. The enemy tried to create confusion and spread lies and to intimidate them, and so they mocked them and they threatened them with war, and it only served to galvanize their resolve. Their commitment goes through the roof. Everyone moves into the city. Everyone takes up arms. They work from early morning until way after the stars come out. Marriages, families, they can withstand a lot of external pressure. But when things fall apart at home, when things fall apart between the couple, that is when you are really in a dangerous spot. That is when you are vulnerable. You know, we, we'd send out trek teams all the time. And you know about the fourth, four-month mark, they'd start sending in emails. And it was never about the externals. It was always the internal relationships, conflicts, interpersonal relationships, stuff with the missionaries. They'd say, oh, we're just, we're having all these problems and it's so hard, but we look on Facebook and all the other teams are doing so well. We think that we're the only ones. We'd laugh because we get the same email from the other team. It's like, who puts your dirty laundry on Facebook, you know? Sometimes I just wanted to forward their emails to one another and be like, no, you all have issues. Even just for us as a church, right? Like, we're not facing a lot of external pressure to, like, quit or shut down or stop. It will be the internal conflicts. It will be the internal sins that break us. Sin in the camp. When there is intentional, unrepentant, continued sin, that affects us all. We see that in the Old Testament. I mentioned Exodus 33, remarkable story. Even in the New Testament, God calls us to hold us hold each other accountable. 1 Corinthians 5 has this really, really strong, awkward language. But it says this, Now I'm writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother, but if he is guilty of sexual immorality, greed, an idolater, reviler, a drunkard, swindler, don't even eat with one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those on the outside, but purge the evil, evil person from among you. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen, great verse, talking about iron sharpening iron. And about how our relationships with one another, when we're intentional about it, we make each other better. We make each other sharper. We draw each other closer to, into holiness. For the glory of God, for our benefit, for the benefit of the mission we are on, we are to have a culture where we hold each other accountable for sin and where we strive to help each other grow in holiness. We are to have an iron sharpens iron culture. And I think, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, I think this is a weakness for us as a church. I don't think that we really have a culture that holds each other accountable for sin. We don't have a culture that really invites that honest, loving critique into our lives. Proverbs 27, 6, wounds from a friend can be trusted. Not only does our sin neg negatively affect those around us, but an iron sharpens iron environment means that actually I fail you 
if I don't help you recognize and change sinful or, or dangerous patterns. Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. I think of all the sin and the suffering that gets expressed in my office, and I think how much of this could have been avoided if like six months or five years or ten years or thirty years ago someone had lovingly called out a brother or a sister for a sin or just a dangerous pattern in their life. Like how much more less, you know, would we be dealing with today if this had taken place before? And if you keep playing this out, okay, what this means is that every time a marriage fails, every time like a kid walks away from the Lord, every time someone gets in trouble with the law or something like that, anytime something like that happens amongst our, our, our people, we bear part of the responsibility. And our first response should be prayers begging for forgiveness from God. And letters of apology written to family members for us being complicit in, in, in what is happening today. Like, I mean, just think about it from that lens. When a failure of some kind happens amongst us, our first response is asking God for forgiveness and asking family members for forgiveness for what we did or did not do. And if you have the nerve to look at some kind of failure and say, I saw that coming, and you did nothing about it, then you are the most guilty amongst us. When you say, I saw that coming, and you did nothing, you are admitting to sins of omission, and you are admitting your own guilt. All that to say, when a brother or sister fails in our midst, that's on all of us. But I, I'm, we, this is, I think this is a weakness of us. I, I don't think we really have a good system or a culture where we really do that and where we're vulnerable. And where we even say, look, I give you permission. And you don't have to tell everybody this, right? But do you have a couple people in your life where you can say, I give you permission to say the hard things into my life. And I'll hear it. I think this is also one reason why church membership is so important. I haven't spoken a lot on church membership just because I'm just personally still kind of wrestling through what all that looks like. But I know it's more than you get to vote and you get a grave spot. Like church membership is deeper than that. I think this is one of those reasons. Because in church membership, we covenant with one another that, that we are going to do life together, that, that, that we're going to just... We're in community together. We are on mission together. We are striving for a common goal. And so we have that certain level of mutual accountability to one another. And I would also say that this happens probably most effectively in the small group. Our, our strategy on Grow Disciples is the large group, the small group, and the no group. Large group is what happens here Sunday morning. Small group is what happens like in, in our Sunday school or, or you know, you and... and and some other Christian brothers and sisters, and no group is just you and your Bible just reading and praying. And each one of those provides something that the other two cannot. So if you only participate in large group, don't expect to get the benefits of small group and no group, because you won't. 
And if you only participate in small group, do not expect the benefits of large group and no group because you won't, right? This kind of iron sharpens iron culture happens best in that small group environment. It's not going to happen here on a Sunday morning. And it's not going to happen just with you and your Bible. Because you need that close relationship where, where you have the vulnerability to say, like, you can say the hard things into my life. And this is a safe place for me to confess the bad things going on in my life and, 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 for, you, and for me to ask you for help in that. Now, here's the other thing, just to be honest. This is harder in small town. It is. Um, when we were in Abbotsford, went to a big church, I don't know, like 500 or 1,000 or something like that. I go to a men's group. I'm sitting across from a couple of guys. Yeah, I can confess my sin to you because if I quit this church, I will never see you again. So it's, it's easy to let you know some of my dirty laundry. It's harder in small town. It is. Because, we, because like, you're my third cousin, and we do business together, and I've known you since the fourth grade, and, like, we're going to share a wing at the nursing home, and, like, that's hard. Like, we're staking out rooms. You get 32, I'll get 34. We'll be right across from each other. And we also know that in small town, word of mouth can make you or break you. And so if our reputation becomes, I struggle with sin X, Y, Z, we know that that can last a long time for you to be able to, to, to be free of that reputation. So I'm not saying we don't do it. I'm not saying that it's impossible. I'm just saying, like, let's just call this out. It's harder in small town. It's harder in, in, in community. And so we're just, we got to find kind of more creative way to deal with this. But that's part of our reality. Here's something else. Even if your sin does not cost you your family, it will cost your family. Your wife may put up with your short temper. She may put up with your lack of affection and affirmation and love and romance. She may put up with the fact that you just don't show affection to the kids the way that you should. She may tolerate your sloppy use of money. And she may not leave you for it, but she's paying a price for it, as are your kids. And ladies, he may put up with your acidic tongue and, and just the way that you demean him privately or publicly, how you manipulate intimacy as some kind of form of control. And he may not leave you for it, but he's paying a price for it. One of the most damaging lies in our culture today is that my actions or my sins only affect me. And no, they don't. They affect everyone around you. And even if your sin does not cost you your family, your family still pays a price. The last part of this, Nehemiah's generosity, uh, we talked about how that stands as a contrast um, to the rest of it. And if you read it, you see that this, that this cost uh, Nehemiah a lot, especially financially. I mean, he gave up a sweet job over in, in the capital, and he comes out here, and he 
either from the beginning or later on, he's appointed as governor, meaning he has the right to tax the people to pay for some of just the costs of being in charge. He does not do that. He does not tax the people. Instead, he pays for all this other stuff out of his own pocket. I think he's feeding like 150 people or some crazy thing like that. Like, yeah, every day he's feeding 150 people. Like, they got like full-on butcher shops going 24-7 in the backyard. Like, just crazy. Never put yourself in a position where you can take from those you lead. Uh, In 1998, uh, Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks partnered and they did the movie Saving Private Ryan. After that, they realized that there's a lot more of this story to tell. So the two got together and in 2001, they did the miniseries Band of Brothers, which follows Easy Company throughout World War II. Amazing, amazing video series. One of my favorite points in all 10 hours of that. um, Winters is, I don't know if he's a sergeant or captain, he keeps getting promoted the whole way through but there's a, a new guy like a sergeant i'm I'll, we'll call him a sergeant and winters is scolding him because he played poker with the men and and they're they're driving along in this jeep and and they're they're kind of having this, this back and forth and winters goes well what would have happened if you had won and the guy's like what's the big deal and then winters says this he goes never put yourself in a position where you can take from these men One of my favorite lines from that whole movie. Never put yourself in a position where you can take from these men. And that line sums up what is going on in Nehemiah's generosity. Nehemiah did not put himself in a position where he could take from these people. As you lead wherever it is that you're leading, do not put yourself in a position where you can take from them. Also, don't expect others to take greater risks or make bigger sacrifices than you have. Andy Stanley tells the story, um, and it's, it's, he looks really good in it, so it's always, so he always feels awkward telling it. But um, they, they were building a new project, and, and they had already asked people to give sacrificially. And, he felt, and he, he felt like God was saying to him and his wife, and they discerned this together, that he was supposed to go four months without a salary. And and so they did that, right? Which is remarkable and is inspirational to others. But if your sacrifice and your risk becomes the bar by which everything else is measured, like how much are you calling people to? And if you understand that your risk and your sacrifice as the leader of this, that probably no one's going to surpass what you did, like how, how, what are you really calling people to? And last is just that that is a faith statement when you make that kind of sacrifice. When you tithe, that is a faith statement. When you don't work on Sundays, that is a faith statement that you are trusting God to help you do the work in six days, what others are trying to do in seven. And lastly, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of good leadership books that talk about the importance of taking care of your people. And... That is hugely important. And in this, you see that Nehemiah is taking care of his people. But you also see at the heart of this passage that for Nehemiah, the big picture was, this is about God's glory. And we don't want to give opportunity for other people to mock God because of what we are doing. Why do we strive to grow disciples? Why do we strive to multiply churches? Why do we strive to transform communities? 
It all comes back to this one right here because we want to see God glorified. And we don't want to give other people a chance or an opportunity to mock our God. This is why we do what we do. This is why we take the risks that we take. This is why we stick to the vision, but we change the method. It all comes back to this. We want the one we love to get all the credit. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your truth. God, thank you for um, just an awareness, Lord, that the internal threats um, are very real threats. And Father, I pray that you would help us develop a culture of iron sharpens iron in our homes, in our marriages, in our church. And, and God, I admit, not really sure on how to move forward in that, but Lord, we recognize that that is a vulnerability of ours and, and, that, and that we need to strengthen that. We need to do something about that. God, I pray for all of us that we would enter into relationships where there's trust and vulnerability to say, hey, I'm struggling with this. And also to say, hey, you can say the hard things into my life. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this group. Thank you for this community. We love you, Lord. Amen. Let us stand together as we sing the last song. This is a